0: Chapter Ten of The Terror A Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Baker. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter Ten The Child and the Moth. The little Roberts ran across the road, up the path, and into the lighted room. Then they noticed that Johnny had not followed them. Mrs. Roberts was doing something in the back kitchen, and Mr. Roberts had gone out to the shed to bring in some sticks for the next morning's fire. Mrs. Roberts heard the children run in and went on with her work. THE CHILDREN WHISPERED TO ONE ANOTHER THAT JOHNNY WOULD CATCH IT WHEN THEIR MOTHER CAME OUT OF THE BACK ROOM AND FOUND HIM MISSING, BUT THEY EXPECTED HE WOULD RUN IN THROUGH THE OPEN DOOR ANY MINUTE. BUT SIX, OR SEVEN, PERHAPS TEN MINUTES PASSED, AND THERE WAS NO JOHNNY. THEN THE FATHER AND MOTHER CAME INTO THE KITCHEN TOGETHER AND SAW THAT THEIR LITTLE BOY WAS NOT THERE. They thought it was some small piece of mischief, that the two other children had hidden the boy somewhere in the room, in the big cupboard, perhaps. "'What have you done with him, then?' said Mrs. Roberts. "'Come out, you little rascal, directly in a minute!' There was no little rascal to come out, and Margaret Roberts, the girl, said that Johnny had not come across the road with them. He must still be playing all by himself by the hedge." what do you let him stay like that for said mrs roberts can i trust you for two minutes together indeed to goodness you are all of you more trouble than you are worth she went to open the door johnny come you in directly or you will be sorry for it johnny the poor woman called at the door she went out to the gate and called there come you little johnny "'Come, ye, bochen. There's a good boy. I do see you hiding there.' She thought he must be hiding in the shadow of the hedge and that he would come across, running and laughing. He was always such a happy little fellow, to her across the road. But no little merry figure danced out of the gloom of the still dark night. It was all silence. It was then— as the mother's heart began to chill, though she still called cheerfully to the missing child, that the elder boy told how Johnny had said there was something beautiful by the stile, and perhaps he did climb over and he is running now about the meadow and has lost his way. The father got his lantern then, and the whole family went crying and calling about the meadow, promising cakes and sweets and a fine toy to poor Johnny if he would come to them they found the little body under the ash grove in the middle of the field. He was quite still and dead, so still that a great moth had settled on his forehead, fluttering away when they lifted him up. Dr. Lewis heard this story. There was nothing to be done, little to be said to these most unhappy people." "'Take care of the two that you have left to you,' said the doctor as he went away. "'Don't let them out of your sight, if you can help it. "'It is dreadful times that we are living in.' "'It is curious to record that all through these dreadful times "'the simple little season went through its accustomed course at Porth. "'The war and its consequences had somewhat thinned the numbers of the summer visitors.' Still, a very fair contingent of them occupied the hotels and boarding-houses and lodging-houses, and bathed from the old-fashioned machines on one beach, or from the new-fashioned tents on the other, and sauntered in the sun, or lay stretched out in the shade under the trees that grow down almost to the water's edge. Porth never tolerated Ethiopians or shows of any kind on its sands, but— the rockets did very well that summer in their garden entertainment given in the castle grounds and the fit-up companies that came to the assembly rooms are said to have paid their bills to a woman and to a man porth depends very largely on its midland and northern custom custom of a prosperous well-established sort people who think llandedloe overcrowded and colwyn bay too raw and red and new come year after year to the placid old town in the southwest and delight in its peace and as i say they enjoyed themselves much as usual there in the summer of nineteen fifteen now and then they became conscious as mr merritt became conscious that they could not wander about quite in the old way but they accepted sentries and coast-watchers and people who politely pointed out the advantages of seeing the view from this point rather than from that as very necessary consequences of the dreadful war that was being waged. Nay, as a Manchester man said, after having been turned back from his favorite walk to Castelcoch, it was gratifying to think that they were so well looked after. So far as I can see, he added, there's nothing to prevent a submarine from standing out there by innocent and landing half a dozen men in a collapsible boat in any of these little coves. And pretty fools, we should look, shouldn't we, with our throats cut on the sands, or carried back to Germany in the submarine? He tipped the coast-watcher half a crown. That's right, lad, he said. You give us the tip. Now, here was the strange thing the north countryman had his thoughts on elusive submarines and german raiders the watcher had simply received instructions to keep the people off Koch fields without reason assigned and there can be no doubt that the authorities themselves while they marked out the fields as in the terror zone gave their orders in the dark and were themselves profoundly in the dark as to the manner of slaughter that had been done there for if they had understood what had happened they would have understood also that their restrictions were useless the manchester man was warned off his walk about ten days after johnny robert's death the watcher had been placed at his post because the night before a young farmer had been found by his wife lying on the grass close to the castle with no scar on him, nor any mark of violence, but stone dead. The wife of the dead man, Joseph Craddock, finding her husband lying motionless on the dewy turf, went white and stricken up the path to the village and got two men who bore the body to the farm. Lewis was sent for, and knew at once when he saw the dead man that he had perished in the way that the little Roberts boy had perished whatever awful way that might be. Craddock had been asphyxiated, and here again there was no mark of a grip on the throat. It might have been a piece of work by Burke and Hare, the doctor reflected. A pitch pastor might have been clapped over the man's mouth and nostrils and held there. Then a thought struck him. His brother-in-law had talked of a new kind of poison gas that was said to be used against the munition workers in the midlands was it possible that the deaths of the man and the boy were due to some such instrument he applied his tests but could find no trace of any gas having been employed carbonic acid gas a man could not be killed with that in the open air to be fatal that required a confined space such a position as the bottom of a huge vat or of a well. He did not know how Craddock had been killed. He confessed it to himself. He had been suffocated. That was all he could say. It seemed that the man had gone out at about half-past nine to look after some beasts. The field in which they were was about five minutes' walk from the house. He told his wife he would be back in a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes he did not return, and when he had been gone for three-quarters of an hour, Mrs. Craddock went out to look for him. She went into the field where the beasts were, and everything seemed all right, but there was no trace of Craddock. She called out. There was no answer. Now the meadow in which the cattle were pastured is high ground, a hedge divides it from the fields which fall gently down to the castle and the sea. Mrs. Craddock hardly seemed able to say why, having failed to find her husband among his beasts, she turned to the path which led to Castellcoch. She said at first that she had thought that one of the oxen might have broken through the hedge and strayed, and that Craddock had perhaps gone after it. And then, correcting herself, she said, There was that, and then there was something else that I could not make out at all. It seemed to me that the edge did look different from usual. To be sure, things do look different at night, and there was a bit of sea mist about. But somehow it did look odd to me, and I said to myself, have I lost my way then?' She declared that the shape of the trees in the hedge appeared to have changed, and besides, it had a look as if it was lighted up somehow. And so she went on towards the stile to see what all this could be, and when she came near, everything was as usual. She looked over the stile and called, and hoped to see her husband coming towards her or to hear his voice but there was no answer and glancing down the path she saw or thought she saw some sort of brightness on the ground a dim sort of light like a bunch of glow-worms in the edge bank and so i climbed over the stile and went down the path and the light seemed to melt away and there was my poor husband lying on his back, saying not a word to me when I spoke to him and touched him. So for Lewis, the terror blackened, and became altogether intolerable, and others, he perceived, felt as he did. He did not know, he never asked, whether the men at the club had heard of these deaths of the child and the young farmer, but no one spoke of them. Indeed, the change was evident. At the beginning of the terror men spoke of nothing else. Now it had become all too awful for ingenious chatter or laboured and grotesque theories. And Lewis had received a letter from his brother-in-law at Middlingham. It contained the sentence, I am afraid Fanny's health has not greatly benefited by her visit to Porth there are still several symptoms I don't like at all. And this told him, in a phraseology that the doctor and Merritt had agreed upon, that the terror remained heavy in the Midland town. It was soon after the death of Craddock that people began to tell strange tales of a sound that was to be heard of nights about the hills and valleys to the northward of Porth. A man who had missed the last train from Miros had been forced to tramp ten miles between Miros and Porth, seems to have been the first to hear it. He said he got to the top of a hill by Trendenock, somewhere between half-past ten and eleven, when he first noticed an odd noise that he could not make out at all. It was like a shout, a long, drawn-out, dismal wail coming from a great way off, faint with distance. He stopped to listen, thinking at first that it might be owls hooting in the woods. But it was different, he said, from that. It was a long cry, and then there was silence, and then it began over again. He could make nothing of it, and, feeling frightened, he did not quite know of what he walked on briskly and was glad to see the lights of porth station he told his wife of this dismal sound that night and she told the neighbors and most of them thought it was all fancy or drink or the owls after all but the night after two or three people who had been to some small merry-making in a cottage just off the Miro's road heard the sound as they were going home soon after ten. They, too, described it as a long, wailing cry, indescribably dismal in the stillness of the autumn night. Like the ghost of a voice, said one, as if it came up from the bottom of the earth, said another. End of Chapter 10